Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with Trip Fuller. Trip is a postdoctoral research fellow in theology and science at the University of Edinburgh. He is also the host of the number one theology podcast, Homebrew Christianity. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Kiefer Dietrich. Kiefer is a singer-songwriter from Dallas. You can get connected with Trip and Kiefer and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Is it all just some trick question? Well, I've looked up to the sky above and I've prayed to understand as if yelling at the clouds. Today I have none other than Trip Fuller. Uh, and Trip, I'll, I'll I'll start with your long title first, uh, and then go with Ooh, your little bit shorter okay. one. But uh, the long title is that you're a postdoctoral uh, research fellow in theology and science at the University of Edinburgh, right? Edinburgh. Whatever you want to say, I I've been corrected, and I don't know if anyone said I've said it correctly. They just stopped correcting me. <laughs> Okay, so that's your long title. Uh, the other uh, title you got on you is that you're uh, a recent author. Um, well, not even recent, but uh, you've, you've re- at least a couple books now. And most uh, importantly, you are the host of the most popular theology podcast out there, Homebrewed Christianity. Um, you know, you and Tim Burnett's podcast, Theopoetics Podcast, are up there kind of battling for my top spot of my favorite theology podcast. So oh, uh, you're going to have, and Tim's been on twice now on my podcast, so maybe he gets the nod at this point. That's that's crap, Mason. I have like over a thousand more episodes than him. <laughs> that's true. And put it this way, without without homebrewed Christianity, then I, he may never have even started a podcast because if we hadn't become best friends, like it, I feel like I get partial credit for him. You know what? And I'll, I'll also give you this: you, you're like on your homebrewed Christianity Twitter account. You at least follow me back. The Opoetics Podcast Twitter account has not followed me back. Oh, so well, maybe you do get you the go. nod at the end of the day. Yeah. So I'm, by the end of this conversation, I hope that you have high quality confidence in the concrescence of preferential option <laughs> for theology podcasts that are members of the process party. There we so, go. We'll have goals in life. And so we both just hope we grow up and can tweet like you. Wow. You know, I mean, when I'm a millionaire, I don't know if I I'm going to have you ghostwrite my tweets. That's what's going to happen. I'm well, going to be like, Mason, ghostwrite my tweets. I can't think of anything funny. Do you sit there and just save all your ideas? Because I delete them because I think, my mom follows me on Twitter. That's what I think almost every time I type something. And then I'm like, ah, mom's not going to get it. 
and I feel like with each tweet, my uh, my ability to have any sort of self respect lowers. Uh, and so that helps. But in addition, my mom doesn't have Twitter and I spend lots of hours on the toilet and in the shower. And it just that helps a lot. All right. Well, um, let's uh, talk more about what you do on the toilet or this amazing new book to find self. <laughs> Hopefully we can get into that. But before we get into that, so you do lots of things in the world. But who is Trip Fuller uh, to Trip Fuller? Um, well, uh I mean, I guess like the biggest things right now is that I am a very committed Laker fan, um, like Los Angeles Laker fan, who we now are tied with uh, the less than wonderful Celtics. Um, We also have eight more finals appearances in the Celtics, so I'm pretty sure that makes us superior. And you Uh, were in Minneapolis at one point, uh, the Lakers were, so mm -hmm. I mean... That would that should get the nod over the Celtics any day. Yeah, and it's a, and the city of Angels affirms the Lakers because there's no lake in Los Angeles. <laughs> That's right. Like I'm pretty sure we kept it just because the first two letters were L A. They're like we're the L Lakers. Um, <laughs> uh, I I'm uh, I, I was a Baptist preacher's kid who was a church planter. Um, we were edgy Baptists, so like not fundamentalist. Um, I was into theater and philosophy from like middle school on, like very invested in it. Two exceptional options for career uh, abilities right there. Mm-hmm. And it also um, explains why you're a Lakers fan and not a Lakers athlete. Yeah. Well, you know, I was waiting for my next life. I always tell myself that if I had Tim Burnett's height, I would uh, be in the NBA. <laughs> um, but I don't. I don't, that's what kept me back. That and my love for carbohydrates and cheese. That, that also is impending of the problem. Um, the, uh, I, I have three kids, 12, uh, a 12-year-old son, six-year-old daughter, three-year-old. And uh, my wife and I started dating when we were 18 at a Baptist college. So uh, there's high-quality material that comes with mm-hmm. um, starting to date someone. Uh, when you're just coming out of purity cult. Um, uh, so, I mean, that's been there. And I would say like the biggest thing about me in connection to like where the book comes from is unlike a lot of people, I didn't have like a lot of church baggage. It was always positive and it just kind of kept growing and getting more progressive over time. Um, and, uh, and in a sense, I always, I deconstructed my faith with Jesus It was Mm. the teachings of Jesus and having a community of people that did kind of radical experiments in fidelity that made, uh, like, even when I was in my, like, post-structuralist atheist phase, I would have been like, yeah, but I've decided to operate as if the mythopoetic and liturgical space of the Christian regime is essential for my own subjectivity. I would say stuff like that, you know, so... Uh, I've like, I couldn't, I'm not even a good atheist. I was like a Christian atheist and still more Christian than most of the people. Um, but that does mean I've always like had a love for the church and the podcast I think comes out of, um, and this is something I know you, you've had similar experiences where when you have a positive church experience and then you realize the church has all these, uh, gifts in the academy 
figuring out how you can give them to the church so they don't feel like they have to turn their brain off or that the gospel isn't connected mm -hmm. to the deepest problems and challenges uh, facing our globe. Um, then the podcast kind of came out of that. Love that. Uh, so before we dive into the content of the book, I got to ask you first, what was it like to take down Wayne Grudem? Um, well, so, you know, everybody, everybody has goals in life, you know, and uh, the other day, like right before this book came out, I was uh, praying to the Lord and I was like, what's up, JC? And John Cobb, I'm not right? sure. Yeah. And I was like, what are my, what am I wanting to really accomplish with this book? And it was at that time, I noticed some high quality tweets from people saying like, you don't have to question whether or not you can vote for Donald Trump. Here's some high quality, solid theological, like the most assigned systematic theology text in America, Wayne Grudem. Jesus must love this guy. This is high quality material. And then giant tweet rant by Eric Metaxas. And we know he knows theology because he's a Bonhoeffer Luther scholar who writes books against slavery and children's books. Yeah, I was just going to say, he's just he's not just that. He got Veggie Tales and he's got Donald Trump as a caveman. And, children's books. And clearly an MMA fighter. Yeah. Renaissance I mean, man. Yeah. His Jesus, his Christology uses HGH, you know? <laughs> But uh, he's like, Wayne Grudem's awesome. So I was like, who is this Wayne Grudem? Go to look it up. Uh, most assigned systematic theology guy. Uh, kind of a crazy fundamentalist. <laughs> uh, he's uh, famous for high quality positions like uh, subordination of women. You know, things like that. Uh, and, and apparently a high quality defense of Donald Trump as the only legitimate Christian option for president, both in 2016 and he's got a sequel. So I said, JC, if I'm going to take somebody down, I got to do this, you know, got to have that flickering of the Galilean image, make a comeback for a moment. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Wayne Grudem for about 78 hours was getting taken down, taken down by Trippy. Yeah. Yeah, and if everyone that listens to this podcast buys five more copies of the book, it can happen for another 72 hours. I don't even know if there's five people that listen to this podcast, but, uh, you know, that's wishful thinking. So, yeah, well, I mean, you got to admit, though, like you spend all this time writing the crappiest systematic theology book, ruining all these people's lives. Think of all the people who have gone to church, like gone to churches where some person had Wayne Grudem's text in their church, <laughs> all those crappy sermons. And then you are sitting there going, I've been number one in theology for like years. Well, there's a book on Jesus. Let me go check it out. And then you start scrolling through it. You're like, he's, He's writing about all these heretics. Maybe it's an apologetics text. Nope. Then he finds out, I think omnipotence is sub-Christian. That's probably when he stopped reading. That's what I'm guessing. 
I would guess so too. So speaking of which, uh, one of the most significant process Christologies was from John Cobb's Christ in a Pluralistic Age. So I'm curious, what ways did you sort of feel that like you needed um, to contribute to a process Christology um, that may have needed like some sort of update or expansion on uh, Cobb's Christology? Oh, okay. So basically you want me to kill my hero in the first like serious question. I yeah, I mean, I don't know I how else it. we're going to get through this interview without the heroes dying. Okay, so, uh, so okay, there are three things that pop in my mind. One, the book itself is, like, it's not specifically processed, though, if you know process, you can see how the expression of open relational I'm doing is thoroughly processed, but um, open relational theology is a bit broader, and I pick that as a centering place because it puts you in conversation with more parts of the church, be it social Trinitarians to um, evangelicals that are open theists and mm-hmm. like Greg Boyden friends, right? right. So uh, that kind of thing. Um, and the other side is uh, the book is structured where open relational thinkers, usually process very process friendly ones, uh, help uh, normal liberal theologians who don't talk metaphysically about God uh, get a little gumption in their Christology. So. Uh, in one sense, what John Cobb did to Barton Tillich, I basically was trying to do to Catherine Tanner and Douglas Otati um, and uh, who's the other person? Oh, Roger Haight. Mm-hmm. Those would be the three. And there's are three people that wrote major, like classically liberal in of some way, um, Christologies. So <clears throat> like, like part of what John did I was trying to do in a contemporary context and then connect dots. The second thing I would say is um, I had a more specific way of engaging historical Jesus stuff because John, over the course of his career, you know, his metaphysics were always really clear, but he engaged different historical Jesus moments in the, because I mean, he's like 90, right? Like he, he touched on Christology over 50 years. So depending on which historical Jesus was dominant, it kind of fluctuated. And that, uh, the old style of historical Jesus of either apocalyptic prophet or wandering cynic sage has kind of uh, become passe of sorts in historical Jesus. And it's been focused on the collective confessional participatory nature of the gospels. Um, and I talk about that in chapter two. So I want, I actually think a process vision of Christology makes more sense using mm. Uh, uh, contemporary constructions of historical Jesus as not historical Jesus, but kind of historical Christic testimonies of a collective. Uh, And it actually correlates strongly to John Cobb's structures of Christian experience. But that whole section got cut out of the book because uh, the first time I gave it in, it was like, why do you talk for 60 extra pages about John Cobb than everyone else? And I was like, because it's John Cobb. (laughs) Um, Anyway, uh, the and the third thing is um, John's does a logos Christology, and at that point his Christology was primarily in process terms about the consequent nature of God, and so what I was hoping to do with the chapter right before it in Spirit Christology is use Spirit Christology with Roger Haight, Joseph Bracken. Joseph Bracken's a neo Whiteheadian um, uh, theologian. He was at to, Luther, right? He was at Xavier. Oh, that's right. yeah. He's like a, a he's a Catholic theologian, right? Mm-hmm. Jesuit. Yeah. Um, 
and and so is uh, Roger Haight in the Spirit Christology chapter. Okay. They're the dialogue partners. But the Spirit Christology chapter, if you're if you were just saying what I was doing in processes, was about the consequent nature of God. And so the book itself uses the Spirit Christology to talk about the consequent nature of God, the Logos to talk about the primordial nature of God, which is what John does, and then. Uh, the chapter after that talks about salvation, which I use through a process uh, Korean theologian, Andrew Sung Park uh, and Douglas Otani. Um, and so it, it collectively you get a, uh, a process, but a, a lot more robust Christology because it connects to different elements of the Christological conversation, not just modifying the primordial nature in its relationship to the person Jesus. Wake up to the sun each morning, we'll be right where we like. Though California has the answers to the riddles of tonight. California has the answers to the riddles of tonight. I'm all for wishful thinking, I do it all the time. Something that I, I find really interesting that you laid out right at the beginning of the book is that you sort of posture your book as um, as the Christological que question being an ongoing question. So you talk about how the early Christian church, um, the Christology question was eminent for them because they had certain social contexts and social issues going on that they needed to flesh out through the Christological question. Um, and so what you posit in your right at the beginning of the book is that your uh, work is meant to talk about the specific social and contextual issues that are going on that demand us to ask this Christological question once again. And so can you talk about what maybe some of those particular issues are, those social context uh, issues are that demand us to ask that very question? Yeah, so... Um I put there are five of them that kind of pop in my head, uh, and I don't know if I put it this way in the book, but in the next book, this is how I put it. <laughs> um, but it's, I, in my head, it's the same conversation. Um, when it goes to uh, the questions today, one are the that we have a, a cosmological consciousness that we are aware we're on a very mediocre planet in a mediocre galaxy and a not that big. Uh, you know, part of the universe. Like if we like threw a dart on your wall behind you and there's a city bitty hole. And then we were like, all of the twin cities is the cosmos. Like we as Christians go like, yeah, uh, second person of Trinity, image of the invisible God, homeless Jew, right on that dot. Right. So like when we do Christology, cosmological consciousness changes things. Mm -hmm. um, there's pluralist consciousness around religious pluralism that most of us know people where the um, one narrative to bind and rule them all approach just doesn't work because now we don't have this option of saying that we're actually a better human being than them. I've met some Christians that, you know, might be able to posit a genuine humility and care or something. And then they tend not to think that uh, their religion is the one true one and the only one everyone else is obligated to. Uh, so pluralist consciousness, then there's uh, historical consciousness and in Christology that connects to historical Jesus, the relationship of Jesus and to Israel and that kind of thing. But we also see ourselves as agents and parts of history, uh, which is not the case for most of church history. Um, 
there's social consciousness, the way we are embedded and determined um, that a lot of our parts, our possibilities are set by social, his, uh, social cultural systems and institutions uh, that, that shape our lives. And if we're going to address a lot of the questions that come up around uh, salvation, or if we want to understand the particularities of Jesus' own person, then we have to address those. And, and the last one element um, is, uh, you, you, we live after the masters of suspicion. So um, false consciousness is always an option. Like, uh, there, if we had a, the right therapist, Mason, we might figure out that the only reason we started Theology Podcast is because uh, we want to be affirmed for being intellectual, yet have mommy issues, and so we still have to believe in God, right? And, but we don't know that. We're not transparent to it. Or mm-hmm. you see, um, it, it, like everyone has this internalized suspicion that you don't, you're not transparent to yourself about why you believe what you believe and the, your person you're talking to may not be. And so you may come up with all your apologetic reasons, have all your evidence that lines up in a demanded verdict. And it's really just, you know, some dealing with some shame from middle school. You don't know that, right? Like, or it could be a desire for money or possessions or prestige, Mm -hmm. like this false consciousness issue. So when you go to do Christology or constructive theology in general, um, I think today the the pluralist, cosmological, historical, social, and false consciousness questions kind of make up a a way of describing postmodern consciousness that has to be dealt with. You are you're clearly deeply committed and also hold these different um, open and relational camps, whether it's the open theist camp, process camp, and even more, and trying to hold them all together, which is part of the reason, I mean, you mentioned that you you took a chapter out with Catherine Keller because you didn't want to err towards a side of, uh, of being too processy, where you probably are going to alienate a certain group of people that would have otherwise been really receptive to this kind of Christology. And, and, you know, I don't know if this is a good answer or not. Like, it's not like you couldn't figure out what I think anyway. I literally have like probably 3000 hours of me saying shit on the internet. But like, if you just, if you just read the book, I wanted to, I wanted all the theologians, I engage all six contemporary theologians to feel like when they hear me talk about themselves, they thought he read and cared to understand me. And I've heard from all but one of them and they all said very kind things like that, that was accomplished. Um, So in one sense, it's an introduction to contemporary Christology because you could just read those sections and you would know exactly what I think when I'm summarizing what animates them and moves them. Um, And then the other side is, I think, uh, I think a lot of the Academy is infatuated with impressing their, um, their academic peers in the humanities and not describing what animates and motivates the actual body of Christ within our tradition. Mm. And so I've, I, I enjoy reading continental philosophy. I, that's what I'm teaching. Like, I don't think anyone in my class right now teaching philosophy of religion when I'm like explaining Derrida has any clue that Tripp is also an ordained minister and ready to, other than I'm not boring, but um, you know, that's not immediately obvious. So 
and I think as a theologian, um, my commitment to the church is pretty intense. And part of it is pragmatic and part of it's folk, like that's how I understand my vocation. But the pragmatic part is we don't have a long time until our commitment to capitalism and economism is going to just fuck our planet over. Am I allowed to use the F word on your podcast? Of course. Okay. The, so like, that's the case. So I have a lot of peers that are great at writing books for people that could barely stand being associated with Christianity and they are processing their trauma from it, but there's still like millions of people with agency, power, and vocations that are part of the church. And I don't have that baggage, so I'm comfortable hanging out with them. And I want to give the gifts of a deeply ecological, justice-centered, uh, life-giving, spiritual vision of, uh, you know, Team Abba JC-style Christianity and do so by engaging their theologians and trying to articulate it in ways that more of the the like when the if people take the time to read and engage it they go oh that's helping me describe the actual experience i have as a person of faith mm-hmm. and so you know that's the other side of it and i don't i don't know if this book did that well but it, it was more like trying to write it for all the people that teach those people theology <laughs> One of the things I find interesting is you use this term divine self-investment. Uh, I've heard it throughout your podcast uh, and you're obviously, or obviously it's the title of your book. What do you mean by this term divine self-investment? Um, well, uh, so in a lot of open relational theologies, uh, when you're dealing with the understanding of God and God's relationship to the world. So like all open relational theologies will say like, you know, the future is open, right? Like the movement of history is experienced by God in the world and the world affects God and God affects the world and God is relational. Um, and in that relationship, God's essence is love. Like that's kind of like basic open relational and there's different expressions. Um, then in the 20th century, the second half, really, it's become more and more uh, more and more frequent that theologians of all sorts of different places recognize the classical account of divine power of omnipotence sucks. That it just is horrible. It is useless. Now, uh, maybe it's not, but I think it is. And we should just get over it, right? And there's all these different ways of doing it. If, if whatever you mean by omnipotence means... God can do whatever God wants to do, whether God willed it before all eternity or is allowing it or permitting it now or whatever else, then God's just like substandard. I always joke about like I wouldn't let an omnipotent deity babysit because they're just like, let all these kids get run over by cars. They just let all these people get the COVID. Like think of how many things, if you really thought God had all that power, God's like an asshole, major asshole, definitely not worthy of worship, 
not interested in spending eternity with definitely a him. Um, so like omnipotence for a lot of reasons got problem, but it got really forced on the church uh, in context of extreme suffering and mm-hmm. un- injustice. So uh, the Shoah or the Holocaust, um, you see it emerge in Japanese theology over dealing with uh, violence and stuff, dealing between the wars and then the Second World War. Um, you see it emerge in liberation theologies in the global South, the question shows up. But you know, Whitehead raised the question of divine power before that because of his metaphysics, which might be like the most nerdy European way of doing it, right? Like they all get around to it because they want God to still be nice. Whitehead like comes back to believing in God and then is like, well, I don't want to believe too much. And then he he comes up with a vision of God where he's like, yeah, we just got to keep it on that Jesus side because I've read enough philosophy to know Caesar started getting a hold of everybody's text. And the next thing you know, ultimate reality looks like uh, Caesar on steroids. Um, Whitehead's got none, of, no, no biscuits for that. And it, a lot of it for him, he 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 was a pastor's kid and uh, left all that behind as an intellectual, especially after they lost a son in World War One. Uh, became extremely intimate, and you can imagine losing a kid in a world war and being like. Uh, Thanks, Pops, for telling me the Lord's Prayer, but I'm going to put this up. And there's a, you know, there's some stories about him getting rid of all the theology textbooks and that you know, religious books mm-hmm. he had around. And he didn't come back to it except for metaphysical reasons. So, like, that's a different way of coming at, you know, the problem. Well, in 20th century, late 20th century, uh, it was uh, Moltmann and company who d- used the phrase divine uh, self-limitation. And that to me is like, I mean, I approve of it if the other options omnipotence, but otherwise self-limitation is like one of my, I get triggered theologically. Because here's what uh, that sounds like. Self-limitation sounds like, like, hi, Wayne Grudem, you're correct. I love omnis and shit. God, omnipotent is great. Now, because we don't want God on the hook for the Holocaust and baby rape, God's going to limit God's self at creation, put God, one of God's hands behind the back. Now we just got this one and it's got a scar from the cross. So don't worry. Now God is not indictable for all these things unless we need that help for the eschaton. Right. And I've had this conversation with open theists and social Trinitarians had it with Moltmann on the podcast. They're like, how can you be a Christian unless you have eschatological assurance? So we always got to have a God that's ready to go, cow, you know, and pull both hands out, just ready to, I don't know, stop a nuke and invade everybody and fix it. And at that, once you, once you get that question, you have to ask yourself, and I always wonder if these people they have really been use they use omnipotence like the eagles in Lord of the Rings. Yeah, except they're not as cool, <laughs> right? Because like when the eagles come, the eagles don't fix everything. They solve a single problem and then drop them back into a story to work on repair, right? Like, except in the movies, they actually have to go back to the Shire and deal with the shit of the things they conquered. And, you know, um, they're worse than the Eagles. They're worse than the Eagles. And, um, and, and so that's the thing I don't, I, I don't like it, it because think of how many parents are just going to sit there. Like, let's imagine 
uh, Moltmann said this, like, well, if we're going to have a nuclear holocaust, God to just intervene or whatever and not let the whole thing go. And I'm like, well, I just want you to know as a parent, I'm officially pissed if God's like, well, I was sitting around kind of dialing up the suffering, waiting until I got to my breaking point. Right? Like, that's the image that just drives me up a wall. Self-limitation is like, I'm just holding back. I'm just, all right. I was thinking about it, but now that y'all have handed them the blankets with the diseases on it, I'm just going to pause for a little while, see how this goes. You know, you just want to know, like, at what point would would you have just triggered, I guess they suck and I'm going to make eschatological banquet. So divine self-investment is to say the open relational visions and God is loving and the very nature of the love is not. I got to have a hand behind my back because I'm trying to honor relationships until I don't. It's because God puts God's complete self moment to moment into the world. Divine self-investment means that God is present in the world in a number of ways. And these might sound very processed, but I try to come up with ways of different, different ways of putting it without using large uh, words that you have to have graduate school loans to figure out. Um, like God is present in each moment uh, it, God is part of the inheritance of the past in each moment. God has invested God's self moment to moment, giving possibilities available to each uh, actual entity or subjectivity to respond. The depth of that subjectivity does give a different possibility structure for God's responsiveness. So your responsiveness is more responsive now, hopefully, because of your maturity and growth than when you were two months old. And even your two-month-old self has more possibilities available to that subjectivity than uh, my the plant next to me. And that plant has quite a bit more receptivity to possibility than a cork, right? Like mm-hmm. So as complexity grows, possibilities are available to it, but it also is inheriting the past. And the past includes God's investment moment to moment all the way up to that point. And then in each moment, God evaluates the possibilities uh, to it. And God cares. God is invested in the greatest possibility of beauty, truth, goodness, zest, and adventure coming into being. Uh, but God does not determine you. So then God is invested um, that you materialize or make present those valuations. And so uh, when you do, whatever measure you do that, that now is part of what's inherited in the next moment. So self-investment is a way of describing uh, God's ongoing relationship to the world is one where there's a cumulative benefit, where there's a valuative possibility in a moment of becoming. And then the other side of it is that there's a receptive affect in the life of God, right? Like that God experiences and fully participates in the creaturely uh, agency and it's received into God. Whitehead even uses phrases, it's it's judged by God, right? Like evaluated by God, what happens? It's evaluated into the life of God. And then from that, God dreams uh, a new, new possibilities in the moment. Uh, and so the image of self-investment is in part based on that metaphysically and an answer to the open theist or social Trinitarians, like how are you process people going to have an eschaton worth anything? And my answer is the infinite God of love gives God self moment to moment until it is fully received. And so like my confidence is and my hope is in that God 
never refute, like never quits giving God self. And then uh, and that is anticipated in the full receptivity of Jesus to uh, mm-hmm. the gift of God. So Jesus's full faithfulness materializes God's covenantal faithfulness, and you get the investment, uh, self-investment of God through the history of Israel and life of Jesus kind of coming to the uh, crescendo and concrescence. Um, so the paralleling fidelity of God and Jesus in, in that story of self-investment, uh, it's like they kiss. Today I have Kiefer uh, Detrick. Is it Detrick? It's Dietrich. But... Dietrich. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, just like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. How about that? Yeah, just like Bonhoeffer. <laughs> Spelled a little differently. But anyway, Kiefer uh, is the musician you hear throughout this uh, episode. And uh, Dietrich, I got it. Right, Kiefer, I just got to say that first off, I think your music is like perfect for like a Sunday or Saturday morning drinking some coffee or in my case drinking some tea uh i think it's just like perfect for like a saturday morning it's just like such easy like tender sweet gentle music is that yeah, do you well, feel like is that what you're like when you're imagining <laughs> playing your own music is that what you think of uh kind of yeah i i was writing a lot of it um with the with the knowing that i'm going to be moving or at the time when i was writing it knowing i was going to be moving to los angeles and so i had a lot of imagery of which is where I am now. So I had a lot of imagery of like driving down the coast mm. and, you know, that kind of uh, vibes too. And, uh, but yeah, I, I definitely am the wake up, you know, in the morning with my coffee and writing my songs. So maybe that's what you're hearing is, is a uh, first thing in the morning, me writing with my coffee in one hand and my guitar in the other hand. I love that. Well, yeah. speaking of some of your songs, uh, you've released a few singles throughout this year. Um, mm-hmm is like from at least what I saw with Spotify, this looks like some of the only recorded stuff that you have out. Uh, is this like, I don't know. What, what was it about 2020 year? They're like, you know what? I'm going to make some of my first music and we're going to put it out. <laughs> um, well, so last May, 2019, <laughs> I graduated college um, with a music education degree. Um, and during my, the final semester of that is student teaching. And during that uh, realized that I did not want to teach in the in classroom mm. settings and uh, kind of <laughs> this year I've been kind of you know thinking thank God because I kind of dodged the 2020 bullet uh, in the classroom with all yeah. the having the zooming and all of that having happened so I would have not I would have definitely not been prepared for that um, but after that I kind of reassessed what I wanted to do and I, I've been playing music for you know writing music even since I was in middle school and all that kind of stuff and um, I used to just want to make music. And so I just kind of had that urge again. And I was just like, I'm going to make music because I put this kind of away, you know, four or five years ago when I went to college and uh, time to pull it, pull it back out of the drawer, I guess, and, and, and get back to work. And I wanted to see what I could do. Uh, everything that I've done this year has been kind of DIY. I didn't go into any like big studios or anything like that. It's just me and my friend, um, Jenna, who uh, was in this we went to school together and she was doing music media I was like hey I need some help mixing and mastering and stuff like that because I can I can write and I can play but I, when it comes to logic and pro tools and all that kind of stuff I'm uh, not <laughs> good at that so um, I, I I don't know I, it just kind of felt right and uh, yeah I, and and it kind of was my saving grace through this year too because obviously 
when I started the process, I had no idea how 2020 was going to be. None of us did. Uh, And so it's just been kind of my little thing that I've been working on during quarantines and, and, and all of that. So it's, it's been uh, really fun this year. Something I find really impressive, especially given the fact that, you know, obviously you've been recording and, and writing some of your own music for a while now, but it is extremely well mastered. But in addition, there are some orchestral pieces and elements throughout a lot of the songs that I find extremely, extremely really like high quality. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how you're able to record all of that, given the fact that you're probably doing it from home? Yeah, well, thank you. That's a very uh, high compliment. Thank you. There's one in particular I bet you're referring to. Uh, California is yeah. the title of the song. Yeah, and it's there's sort of this. Um, that one, that one was definitely like kind of an experiment for me. Um, I believe it or not, recorded all of that in my friend Jenna's apartment. <laughs> so wow. um, literally, all of that came from like a bedroom, which was kind of perfect because the song is kind of about daydreaming and. I definitely wrote that song. You, you were talking earlier about kind of the morning coffee kind of sound, mm-hmm. but I definitely wrote that one, like staying up late at night, kind of dreaming about another mm. place, get kind of that vibe. And so I wanted to maintain that like core me just laying in bed, playing guitar, singing sound. But I also wanted to incorporate those like dreamy elements of it where I'm like dreaming of another thing. And so we just kind of messed with reverbs and stuff, which is this, all of this again is like not my wheelhouse. My wheelhouse is like, an acoustic guitar. <laughs> right. And so this, a lot of that was like, I'd love to take credit for it, but I, I recorded the sounds, but Jenna, like my, my uh, mixer, my, my recording engineer is the person who really like kind of messed with the reverbs and the atmospheric of it. And she added, uh, we had the idea to add in like the ocean waves and mm-hmm. um, there's this really cool, my favorite part of it is there's this little like treble guitar thing that I recorded that she then like added a bunch of effects to it. You can't even really tell that it's guitar anymore. It's just kind of this like ringing that's happening. And it mm-hmm. definitely adds to like the dreamy atmosphere. I just, I, I really love how that turned out. We spent a long time on that one because the other two that I have out are pretty acoustic and they were right. very simple. And that one was, that one was definitely a very fun uh, experiment. With, with that being an experiment, do you have kind of a vision to keep doing that kind of music? Because I, I think there is something you said, you know, Fleet Foxes just released their new album that is yeah. also very similar and they mm-hmm. a- have a lot of orchestral uh, elements and very atmospheric elements to their music. I-, I feel like that's a really good route to s- sort of separate yourself from a lot of other singer-songwriter, acoustic guitar uh, kind of uh, musicians. So do you feel like that's kind of a route that you really want to keep uh, experimenting and honing your skills on? Yeah, I mean, I whenever I don't know if you're a Bon Iver fan, but oh yeah, he, I am. yeah, yeah. Whenever they uh, they dropped or he dropped um, twenty two a million when it was all of the crazy you know mm-hmm. electronic elements, but it was still like folk music that just blew my like like that blew my mind, and I was like, oh, I got to figure out how to do this someday because it was still like folk and singer songwritery, but it was not. It was so new, like nobody. He he basically invented the like sound palette that a bunch of you know indie folk artists are using now and so I really like the idea of kind of keeping the core of like who I am is definitely just an acoustic guitar player musician um, but definitely want to you know extend into those areas of like adding in the atmospheres and um, trying to kind of bring out uh, my lyrics too is, is a big thing of why I wanted to add in those atmospheres and so I'm definitely open and trying to continue down that path of like you know maintaining that sound. Well, I, lo- I, I love it. I, I just absolutely love that kind of indie folk sound. Um, you've released 
what three or so three singles yeah now. actually my last one my last the third one this year just dropped uh well when we're recording this last week <laughs> so right okay great um, very recently uh, do you have any anticipation of future music going to be coming out even this year or even next year? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, the EP that I'm, the three singles that have dropped are going to be the, the, I think I'm stopping single releasing at those three. And there are three more that we are working on um, that are going to be kind of, I'm going to release uh, a, a, an EP of all six of the songs that are kind of, uh, together at the end of the year uh, i'm shooting for november but this is my first time doing all this and so mm-hmm. um and you kind of have to be a little bit ahead of the game and so some of the songs are taking a little bit lo- longer to kind of perfect and get to the right place than anticipated but you know what it's all fun uh to me so if it's a little bit later than november i wouldn't mind and uh, but that's going to be called the gray um and it's just kind of um it's obviously includes the three songs that uh, are out and available but there's there are other three songs that are uh, I'm super excited to mm. release um, and and get out into the world. They're three of my favorites that I've written. So, I love that. I love that. Well, thank you so much for sharing your music. I, I was listening to it this morning, and uh, again, it really just kind of brought me to that place of uh, you know now it's October, but uh, here in Minnesota summers, you know, just being able to sit mm. out on a porch or sit out in the backyard in the morning with the sun beaming down and having either a cup of coffee or a cup of tea it just brought me to that place. And so uh, your ability to take people to certain kind of experiences with your music is pretty, uh, uh, it's pretty rare. And uh, so I really appreciate that you have that ability and you're able to manifest that into your music. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. Time, California's not the answer to the riddles of tonight. No, California's not the answer. But it sure would be all right How do you see divine self-investment being an inspiring and liberating theological work? Yeah, well, um, so the there's a long argument in it for how you understand incarnation without divine invasion. And part of it is that there's a cumulative investment in God over time and through the relational context of like, I mean, there's like a basic one that human beings emerged at some point, God spent billions of years related to, to a cosmos that did not have a symbolic representation in order for you to think and process possibilities in one's finitude in a community of uh, like where anything remotely like personal relation with ultimate reality is possible, right? So there's this long process of getting up there. And then when you think about the history of Israel, without the fidelity of Sarah and Abraham, you never get to the context of Amos and Hosea. And without the context of Amos and Hosea, you don't get Mother Mary pregnant having said yes to being a part of God's plan in the world going, guess what? You're going to tear down mountains and people from thrones. Like when you think of the Magnificat, like she doesn't say that in a vacuum. She says that because she actually inherits the fruit of God's self-investment through covenantal faithfulness. God's hesed is always available in these traditions through the mythopoetic nature rituals and all this kind of stuff. And so Jesus without being divine invasion, the incarnation is this emergent property that comes through this network of relations that is both the contribution 
of historically situated individuals in communities and God's investment moment to moment within them. Mm. Like, so when you see the movement of a tradition that way, and you see the emergence of Christ that way, as Christians, our language in the tradition for participating in God is like very robust. Like John Cobb jokes about all the time. He says, you know, well, he, he jokes like, it's like, I don't know how everyone that reads Paul isn't immediately a process theologian. He walks around saying like, we're one member of another and we participate in Christ and let the same mind be in you that's in Christ Jesus. And then most Christian theologians go, well, that's a neat metaphor for discipleship, right? And John's like, why? Like, I'm, that's not necessary, right? And so, you know, part of the book of, of self-investment is that it's not just a way of saying, um, through Jesus's full faithfulness to the call of God, you see the uh, God's desire imaged in his materiality, right? Like, and so that's a way of saying, human and divinity at the same time without coercion or invasion. Um, but it's not just that. Uh, it's that through that, through the canonic fidelity of Jesus, um, a whole, a whole community is comes into being that gets to participate in that faithfulness. Right. And so uh, when you think of the way in which self-investment uh, frames material, political, social engagement. It's that we're the community called to let the same mind be in us that is in Christ Jesus, who didn't seek after power. Hmm. And um, and for those on the other side, it's the one that lifts up, right? Like that's the two movements in the in the Kenosis hymn. Um, and, and you can play it out through the Synoptic Gospels, but in one sense, the, the, the theological narratives you get in the Gospels are stories that tell us what the mind we participate in looks like when it's in action. Mm-hmm. And I, I just find it hard that we have so many people who use the titles of Christianity, call Jesus Lord, Savior, and all these things. And then they aren't disturbed that the fidelity uh, to those titles um, may like they don't lead to a more just and beautiful world. And half the time it doesn't even lead to us being better humans, right? That's just sad, right? And so the, when divine self-investment becomes the image, then there's a sense that like, yeah, you're not responsible for everything in the world, but you're responsible to everything in the world. And what you can do is use your own agency and responsiveness mm-hmm. to say yes to the possibilities that are available to you. And then don't sweat it, right? Like, you don't, like, don't lose your sleep. I have a lot of progressive friends that, like, can't manage all the time because there's, like, so many things wrong. And then you ask them, like, well, what can you do about it? And then they're, like, tell you some things. You're, like, yeah, but that's what you're doing. You don't have to, like, imagine yourself omnipotent because you can't imagine a God as one. (laughs) Be faithful in all the ways you can think to be faithful and that usually means you have to be in a community that can call you out and can act collectively. And guess what? There are communities of people who gather regularly. And when they tell themselves who they are, they say things like this. We're all screwed up and yet we're all infinitely loved. And we're going to remind ourselves of this truth by celebrating a meal 
where we ritually remember that God takes sides and leads people out of bondage and expects that if you're in that community, you could go to the face with imperial power and perverse religion. Now, eat my body and drink my blood, right? Like it's all sitting there. So like, I feel like self-investment is trying, like that whole image is trying to like recenter the Christian life and the Christian community um, on the collective practice of the fidelity of Jesus that we see in, in the gospels. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, because this is not a homebrewed Christianity <laughs> episode, and we're going to try to keep it under five hours. Uh, last question. How can listeners get connected to you and your work? Well, um, you can go to tripfuller.com with two Ps. Um, that's like the easiest. I made a movie called The Road to Edmund. It's available on Amazon Prime. It's a buddy road trip comedy with spiritual themes, and it's really mediocre. Um, it was, it's like it the Christian was, version of The Hangover, right? Yeah, it was... It, it was uh, gloriously removed from all faith film festivals that we uh lifeway to applied to enter um they didn't think that we were trying to spread the good news of the word uh but the uh non-religious film festivals found it a a delightful film uh the the, if people you know want to come hang out in scotland when the covid's over they can do that uh but yeah, I mean, I think the easiest way is just to like go online and type my name in. I try to make myself very available, Mason. Well, Trip, uh, I've loved chatting with you. Um, you know, we'll we'll continue our friendship uh, in many other ways, uh, mainly over through tweets. Uh, but I have enjoyed obviously your book, but also one of the things I wanted to mention to you before we we uh, end this episode is that as much as I'm a huge Catherine Keller fan and she is most easily that my favorite theologian of all time. I, I say that with, uh, with also knowing in the back of my head that no other theologian have I actually engaged and listened to more than yourself. And oh. so I just want to say over the last several years, um, as I've worked in my own like, theological journey, as I've gone through seminary, there has not been a theologian who I've engaged more and listened to more than yourself. And you've opened me up to so many different uh, voices that I would have never otherwise heard. And so I just want to thank you for that. That's my sincere moment. Everything else from here on out is going to be sarcasm and assholery. But uh, I did want to well, at least say that. Aw, I'm not... I really just want to give you a hug. You know, that, I appreciate that. Nothing's going like it should. Not at all like I thought it would. It's not the future that I had been looking forward to. If you would like to connect with Trip and Kiefer and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. Sometimes things don't go the way Sometimes we make plans that